Welcome to Get Found, Get Funded, a podcast all about creating visibility, paths for growth, and opportunity for entrepreneurs. We focus on those entrepreneurs who are statistically underrepresented in the startup ecosystem. Your hosts are Zena Island, president of X Plus PR, a media relations agency, angel investor Aurelia Flores, managing member of Athena Digital Media Group, a digital marketing agency, and angel investor Christina Francis, president of Esteem Logic, an information technology consulting and training firm. In each episode, you will meet a new startup founder, hear about their company and where they are now. We then focus on one key challenge facing that entrepreneur, a challenge that is common among startups. Each episode also features a guest expert to weigh in on the challenge. Welcome to Get Found, Get Funded. Words Live is a 21st century education technology firm. Currently in beta, the Words Live app is a new technology that allows teachers to integrate popular music into their lesson plans. The platform is built on a patented algorithm that integrates song lyrics into classroom reading text to augment literacy for students. Words Live is currently active in five school districts across the U.S. and Canada. Gil Perkins, doing business as Sage Salvo, is the artist, scholar, and social entrepreneur founder of Words Live LLC. Sage is currently a Clinton Global Initiative University Fellow, a 4.0 Schools Fellow, a 2017 Camelback Ventures Fellow, and a 2017 graduate at the Harvard Kennedy School, where he earned a master's degree in public administration. The challenge of the company we will address today is funding. And the question, are there other ways to construct a fundraise outside the angel VC model? So Sage, Welcome to the show. We're so glad to have you today. Very much appreciate you. Glad to be here. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about Words Live. Yeah, so Words Live uh, is, is an ed tech company born out of my efforts to really address uh, student engagement in the classroom and performance. It started in D.C. and this takes us back to like 2012. And I was earning a Ph.D. in economics at Howard at the time. But I was also hosting an open mic of Busboys and Poets, which is like this really popular open mic spot. We have a lot of traveling artists who come through D.C. They, they have to stop at, at Busboys and do their performances. And so I had the, the fortune of hosting uh, every Tuesday night there for about two years uh, when it was really popular. And I was volunteering in schools, uh, Cardoza High School in particular, uh, right in the same area. And I noticed that the kids were just, you know, not showing a ton of enthusiasm and also just not really performing when it came to reading and writing. And I was tinkering with like, how can I address this? It, it tugged at me because I'm a product of DC public schools myself, I grew mm -hmm. up here. And I noticed that some artists, while they would have the same piece and the same performance, depending on what they thought or who they thought was in the audience would change their tactics. And I was like, wow, like that's like a masterful communication tool. Like I, I wish like my kids had that same level of, 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 t of a tool set. And what I started to do was really pay attention to what the artists were doing on stage and their pieces and try to create like a whole taxonomy out of those approaches and devices. And so that led to me then trying to relay that over into the classroom, which then led to this whole system of language about like, could I systemically integrate things that artists do into the classroom that would enable kids to read and write at a higher level? And we just went around DC and then PG County 
as a program first. Mm -hmm. And we were doing after school programs, training teachers on how to use these methods. And then we had to figure out like, okay, as one small company doing like in-person, in-classroom programming, we're not gonna reach all the kids that need this. So then what does scale look like? And that's where like the technology question came into play. That's awesome. Sage, we've known each other for quite some time. Matter of fact, remember you hired me as your publicist Absolutely. to help uh, while you, cause you started fundraising. You were fundraising back then and you were thinking about doing a crowdfunding campaign yep. and you wanted to get some press yep. prior to uh, launching that crowdfunding campaign. Definitely. Can you tell me about that process, you know, that started back in 2014 and what you found out so far? Because you're still fundraising. Yeah, like I, I remember, and this is around the same time we're thinking about, okay, well, how does this scale, right? Like that was the question that investors wanted to know. That was, you know, on my mind. And, and we realized that I had to settle on a certain technology or, or, or had to be tech enabled, so to speak. I think that was the term <laughs> at the time. And so it seemed like we were a bit premature for fundraising at that point. However, I noticed that schools were willing to do business with us. So I said, well, okay, we're a program, so why don't we just get some contracts, kind of start the business from there. And we were fortunate to contract out with not only school districts, but public libraries. So we kind of propped ourselves up, you know, that way being creative. And then came this whole new door of like paid, non-diluted capital fellowships and accelerators. And that's a lane that I slid into uh, about two years ago that's really propped us up, allowed me to get staff, you know, really get some resources around building out that technology and doing these programs. Well, tell us a little bit more about that fundraising process because um, you've been fundraising since 2014 and then um, you've been able to prop yourself up with fellowships and contracts, but you're now in the middle of raising a seed round. So tell us a little bit about that and um, you know, how you feel about the fundraising process in general? So for us, it was a little confusing, only because, you know, for us, it represented the very beginning, like we're, we're about to get on this journey. And so we're looking for capital to get us started and to really augment things that we were doing well. We knew we were programming well, we made relationships with school districts well, and so we're looking to scale up. But the conversations with the initial investors were always about the exit, which is like the end of their relationship. And so it was just confusing to me because I'm looking for like partners, folks that can be operational and strategic, you know, not just add capital like a blank check, but really, really come in sort of more of like a co-executive with me and think through the problems and, and scale together. And I just had sort of like an, an instinctive you know, disposition against what I call the alphabet game, which is like, okay, do C, then do series A, then series B, then series C, then series D. And I, I just saw that unfolding, like, yo, I, I don't want to be a part of that. It seemed like it was a whole different job other than just like growing a great company and having a meaningful impact. And so I kind of just tapped out of that particular perspective. So Sage, I remember you had, um, you know, contracts with some of the school districts. I remember that was another way of you getting yourself out there, getting words live, and also to make some money. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think it's, it was like a, it was weird too, because we were young, but people were mystified, like, how did you get a contract? And I was like, I've written, I mean, I remember that year where, actually, I, got, I need to back up. So when I first started doing programming, I was going into schools sort of as an unregistered business, sort of just like one guy with maybe an associate in the schools actually said, you know, you need to become a vendor <laughs> to actually do this, right? So that's when I was like, okay, all right, let me incorporate, let me get all my paperwork together, you know, let me do those things. And it was actually through the school's encouragement that I then became a vendor 
and then obviously, you know, contracted out with them. Uh, but it's a weird blind spot, I think, for entrepreneurs because we don't think about revenue first, right? Like we, we get the idea, you know, we put our plans in play. We hopefully hire some people that are willing to work for free <laughs> at the beginning. Right. And then we think raise, 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 right? Like the default is to get money through an investor. And we don't think, well, there actually may be people who are willing to pay right now before you have all the, you know, sizzle on top. They may be willing to pay right now. And so I just took that leap and, and was fortunate enough to, to be able to do business. So, so can you unpack that a little bit more? How did you actually approach developing your business model and coming up with your cost structure? Because I think that's a, an area that a lot of entrepreneurs have issues with. Yeah, definitely the cost structure is a big one because, you know, we see like the pot at the end of the tunnel. We're like, all right, we got to go there. And we hire everyone that we think, all our friends, associates, et cetera. But for me, when we looked at doing programming and doing contracts with the schools, I looked at the revenue and then sort of like a government contractor backed into okay, what's it going to cost to fulfill this contract? And then am I going to have enough margin then to save some money and then build out the technology that we knew we had to build? So I had to kind of think and become like a government contract in that way, which is like think competitively, right? Like place your bid, but then back in like all the expenses, make sure it makes sense or kind of make it make sense. <laughs> and then make sure you can, you know, kind of retain enough to, to really get some resources to build out. Well, I'm really excited to introduce our expert today, Jenny Casson, and she's going to talk with us a lot about fundraising and different ways to approach fundraising because you've been bootstrapping for yep. quite some time. Um, Jenny has over two decades of experience as an attorney and advisor for mission-driven entrepreneurs, which says that definitely means you. and Absolutely. <laughs> and she's helped her clients, and I'm going to pause here just so you don't miss this, raise millions of dollars from values aligned investors and has raised over a million dollars for her own businesses. She is the author of Raise Capital on Your Own Terms. Who doesn't want that? <laughs> How to fund your business without selling your soul. She earned her JD from Yale Law School and a master's degree in city and regional planning from the University of California at Berkeley. She served on the Securities and Exchange Commission Advisory Committee on Small and Emerging Companies. Jenny is also a fellow at Democracy Collaborative, excuse me, Democracy Collaborative, and really interesting, the co-founder of the Force for Good Fund, mm. a fund that invests in best for the world companies led by women and people of color using a model that does not require the company to be sold or do an IPO. So Jenny, welcome. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. And why don't we let you just weigh in a little bit on what you've heard so far from Sage and his fundraising journey to date. Yeah, so uh, Sage, I can so empathize with what you're going through. I, I know so many entrepreneurs that they know they need to raise money because to achieve their goals in their business, they really need outside money. Bootstrapping often is kind of a losing game, <laughs> unfortunately. So you know you need to raise money, and so you look around about how do I raise money, and unfortunately what you mostly hear from, from people, you know, look, researching on the Internet, asking around, people tell you you have to play that alphabet game that you mentioned where you go for the venture capital model. And the venture capital model basically involves um, growing the business as fast as possible at any cost, 
so that you can have an exit, which is usually the sale of the company or maybe an IPO. And that is just a terrible fit for most businesses. And interestingly, even though that model gets so much attention and really many people think is the only way to raise money for a startup, only 6% of the companies on the Inc. 500 list actually took VC money. So there's actually many, many other ways to raise money, but for some reason that I don't totally understand, that model gets all the attention and a lot of people don't realize that there are so many alternatives, really alternatives that are used a lot more than that model, but just for some reason aren't super well-known. And I think one of the reasons they're not well-known is that um, raising money is a highly regulated activity. We have our securities laws that are somewhat complicated. And so um, a lot of lawyers and people who give advice to small businesses are kind of um, scared to sort of think outside the box. You know, there's this one model that is a tried and true method in terms of legal compliance. And so they don't really know of alternatives. And then, you know, for whatever reason, the VCs have um, really made a great name for themselves as people who are these geniuses that come in and, and make your business super successful. But I hate to tell you this, the, the studies show that on average investments, um, if you invest in a VC fund, the most likely outcome is you will lose money. So <laughs> they're really not all they're cracked up to be. The emperor's clothes are still not quite being a called out as not being there yet, but I think we're getting to that point because more and more people are starting to realize that that model is actually not a great model for probably 99.9% .9 of businesses. So, you know, what is the alternative? So I, um, how did I even get into knowing what the alternative was? And what happened was I worked at a nonprofit for the first 11 years out of law school doing community economic development. So I really wasn't in the world of startup funding and then I switched over to working at a law firm where we were helping mission-driven businesses raise money from investors. And that's when I first started learning about the securities laws. And, um, and so I kind of approached it with a very open mind. I didn't really know about the VC model, to be honest with you. I just said, oh, our clients need funding. How do we get them funding? Um, and so our first client was actually um, a grocery store that was trying to um, – you know, create a grocery store in a in a very low income neighborhood that hadn't had a grocery store for decades, um, and so, you know, it didn't even occur to us that they would ever go for VC funding because that's not the type of business that would actually go for that kind of funding. Um, and so we found another method which involved um, the the founder going out to his community people that just loved the idea of what he was doing and he set his minimum investment very low. He set it at a thousand dollars and he ended up raising over a million dollars just by allowing anyone to invest. And yes, there are legal ways that that can be done. Um, and not, and it's not just who was able to invest. So it was just regular folks, not VCs or people or angels that have the VC model in their mind as the only right way to invest. But it wasn't just how, you know, how he was able to reach the investors. It was also what he offered to the investors. So when VCs invest, they tend to um, have this one model. That's a, they, there's like really one term sheet that they all use where they get preferred stock. They become your boss. They have control. 
and the way they make their money is when you sell the company. But this guy had no desire to sell the company. So what he offered was non-voting preferred stock that pays a dividend so that his investors could get paid along the way as the business grows. So I'll stop there since I've been talking for a while, but that's kind of some background on, on how I learned that there are many other ways to raise money. And, you know, I've seen many, many businesses, both in tech and not in tech, raise hundreds of thousands to millions of dollars using these strategies. I have a question for you. And going back to the grocer who um, raised a million dollars, starting off with a thousand, is was was I don't I don't I don't I don't know how long ago was it this happened, but was this your first? You know, was he doing crowdfunding? Yeah. So his so I help clients use lots of different models, but his this is a great way to raise money, which is what we call investment crowdfunding. So to differentiate it from the Kickstarter type campaign where it's rewards based crowdfunding where you can't offer any kind of an investment opportunity. You can only offer like, hey, you get a t-shirt or you get, you know, a 10% discount at the store once it opens or whatever. Um, he was, at, my client was offering actual stock in his company. Um, and so we call that investment crowdfunding. And yes, that's what we did. Uh, he was able to publicly advertise it. It was pre-Jobs Act. The Jobs Act of 2012 actually added some ways that that can be done. But even back then, there was a, a legal way that you could do that. So yeah, he did go ahead and publicly advertise the offering and ended up, I think, with over 200 investors, I think. <laughs> well, and Jenny, I think that's really important for folks that are listening to really understand this. I mean, I think it's really exciting when people hear about it for the first time. And they're like, holy cow, is this really possible? And it is highly regulated. And that's what I think why your expertise is so important, you've you know, done specialty work at the SEC and you really know how these things work. Talk to us a little bit about the regulatory, um, just the environment right now and what makes some of this stuff possible. And, and of course, for those who are listening, you will have lots of opportunity to get in, in touch with Jenny later. So I don't want you to think this is the only time you don't have to take notes. Just, just listen and, and uh, take it all in. Just, you know, I think part of what you bring, Jenny, is just opening the possibilities for folks. Yeah, so um, the way I – there actually are quite a few different regulatory pathways that you can choose depending on how you want to raise money. So I asked my clients a few questions. Um, one question is, would you like to be able to publicly advertise the fact that you're raising money? Um, and I, you know, I'm definitely a fan of being able to do that. It just makes it so much easier to reach people. If you don't publicly advertise, you have to do a lot of outreach one-on-one, -on -one, which is fine. I mean, you don't. I never use the term friends and family because there are ways to reach out to investors, quote unquote, privately, who are people that you don't actually know yet. You know, there are people that maybe you meet at an event and you tell them, "Hey, I'm raising money." So, um, but if you can publicly advertise, it's nice. So that's question one: Do you want to be able to publicly advertise? Question two, who would you like to be able to include in the offering? So there's something under the law called an accredited investor, which is, I'd say, around 10% of the population, which is defined under law as a person who has at least a million dollars in net worth or 200000 in annual income. And um, a lot of attorneys and advisors will tell you that, oh, do not talk to anyone who is not an accredited investor. But actually, there are many, many ways to raise money where anyone can invest. Um, so, if, 
so I ask my clients, would you like to be able to include everyone? And most of my clients say, yes, of course I want to include everyone. So, um, and again, there are ways to do that. Um, question three is what state do you want to raise money in? Because there are state level regulations in addition to federal. So if you want to raise money in all 50 states, there are some ways you can do that. And thanks to the Jobs Act, that has actually added some options for that. Um, but there are other ways where if you're focusing on just one or two or a few states, that adds some other possibilities as well. And then another question is how much? If you're raising up to $1 million, actually $1,070,000, strangely enough, um, you have a ton of options. There's, really, uh, there's a ton of options available. If you want to raise over one million seventy thousand, it takes away one of the options that's a very, that's kind of a really nice one, which is the new federal crowdfunding exemption. But there are still ways you can raise up to five million um, using other strategies. So, and there's even some strategies where there's no cap at all. So, um, if, if you can answer those four questions, um, I can tell you which. Uh, compliance strategy is going to make the most sense for you. And also, interestingly, you could do more than one thing. So sometimes I'll have a client that will say, I want to start out with a private offering. So I'm going to go around and just talk to everyone I can think of, you know, meet new people, go everywhere I can think of where like-minded people are hanging out, offer the investment opportunity that way. Um, and then after a few months of doing that, I'm going to switch to a public offering. So that's a possibility, too. You don't have to necessarily just pick one. Yeah, Jenny, so this is Sage. I'm, I'm literally just consuming everything you've been talking about and taking notes. Uh, this is very, very valuable information. And I guess it's, it's a little validating for me, too, in that I've been thinking of ways that are, you know, non-traditional, quote unquote. And one thing I've been thinking about is is I kind of read through your material and I started thinking about my ideal investor. One of the characteristics was someone who's willing to come on sort of as a co-executive who doesn't have a ton of other investments in their portfolio, but is really willing to take dividends as we grow. And I wanted to just get some more feedback from you, like how viable of a strategy is that? Because I did speak to one investor who said that no one will be able to take a dividend for the first two years except him, which I kind of understood because, you know, priority, get your money back. But just have you seen that policy done well? Is there sort of some standard dividend policies for startups? And, and then how do, how do investors react to that kind of that kind of thing? Yeah, so there's kind of two parts to your question. One is will investors be happy getting dividends? as opposed to relying on the big exit. Yeah. And I would say definitely yes, depending on who the investor is. There are some investors that are so caught up in the VC model that dividends would be weird to them. <laughs> but like I'd say 90, over 99% of potential investors would be thrilled to get dividends. Um, so, so yes, dividends are awesome. Uh, a great way to compensate investors. I personally, as an investor myself, I would rather invest in a company that's going to pay dividends than a company that says, well, we really hope to have a big exit in the next five to 10 years. You know, to me, dividends feel much more, uh, you know, lower risk than just the hope that you're going to have this big exit. So that's one thing. And then the other part of your question is, can what should you try to find an investor that will also become kind of like a co-founder who helps you manage the company and helps you, you know, make connections and all of that? And I personally am not a huge fan of of doing that because um, 
trying to find a needle in a haystack to find someone who wants to invest, has money to invest, wants to spend a significant significant amount of time working on your company, someone who totally shares your values and has the same vision as you, someone who you can really get along with over the long term. I mean, that is just a really hard combination. So what I recommend instead is first focus on raising the money. And don't give up control. So pretty much none of my clients give up any control when they raise money from investors. And because, and they can do that because they tend to be raising from a larger number of smaller investors, and the investors don't really want control. Um, so, so raise the money. Don't give up control. Then go out and find those awesome contractors and staff people to give you everything you need, and but that don't become co-founders or, you know, don't become major shareholders. Don't, you don't give up control to them. And that way, if things don't work out, you can say goodbye. <laughs> yeah. So, Jenny, we really appreciate this feedback. I know Sage is sitting here smiling, just, you know, one from the validation, but then also I, I see some plan of action going through his head. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and I think this is timely because reports now are showing VC deals especially in the U.S., are declining, right? And so people and entrepreneurs have to be more creative in how they're approaching their funding. Uh, you mentioned a few things about dividends, but I want to talk about returns because I think returns matter in how you're talking to investors. So what advice do you have to the entrepreneurs on how to actually message what the return on investment is for the investor and what benefits uh, they're providing for the investor? Yeah, great question. So a lot of mission-driven entrepreneurs who do quote-unquote, alternative to the VC model will kind of feel like they're having to ask for a, con- a concession from their investors and feel like, oh, you know, maybe my return isn't all that great compared to what you could get if you invest like a VC. But like I said, the Kauffman Foundation studied VCs and found that their returns gen- are, on average are zero to negative. So, you, if you can offer, let's say, an annual dividend of a five percent, you know, five percent return on the investment annually, um, that's actually a really good return. <laughs> Some people don't think that when they first hear it, but compared to zero to negative, it's actually really good. Um, and um, I, I, the one business that I has been so inspiring to me is uh, this company called Equal Exchange that sells fair trade coffee and chocolate, and they. They were so early in realizing that the VC model is not for them. They never want to sell. They're a worker co-op. They they are really passionate about taking care of the farmers they work with and their own workers. And so they set up a, 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 um, a way of raising money that involves non-voting preferred stock where they pay a 5% annual dividend. Now, they don't have to pay it. If there's a year where they can't pay it, they don't pay it. But they have a target a uh, 5% annual dividend. And they've raised like $20 million over the years. Every time they open up the investment opportunity, there's a waiting list for people to invest. The minimum investment is $25,000. And, you know, it's people love this investment because 5% is a good return and it's an incredibly mission-aligned investment for people. Mm-hmm. So if you're when you're talking about returns, don't at all apologize because over the long run, you will probably pay a better return than the VCs will get. You know, yes, every now and then a VC hits it big and invests in that one company that, you know, it hits a major home run. But on average, that just doesn't happen. 
And if, if you're just slow and steady doing your thing, growing, you know, in a sustainable way, then you probably will be able to pay a nice annual dividend. And then when, you know, when things start to go better, you pay a better dividend. And who knows, maybe someday you will sell the company for whatever reason, and then maybe your investors will benefit from that as well. So um, to me, that's a much better investment in terms of risk and return than something that's so speculative that, you know, happens one in a million times. Jenny, one of the things that I know you're focused on, and certainly we are as well, is looking at companies that have returns that are not purely financial, right? So when we're talking about, like you said, mission-driven companies or um, in the realm of social entrepreneurship, um, there are angel funds and VC funds even now that are really interested in looking at different models because for myself as an angel investor, I look at at my investments not just in am I going to get money back, but am I going to do something good in the world? Um, and I know um, I know Christina feels the same way, and we're part of um, an angel network, the Pipeline Angels, that is all about creating, as Natalia would say, hashtag more voices, and and really kind of being um, in a place to create better b- better and bigger good. And I know Sage, you said that part of your mission is to revolutionize education, which is so key in this country. So talk to us a little bit about that, because that's part of your, that's part of your piece too, Jenny, is really making sure that folks have, um, have that messaging part going and that, and that part of it is really about not just the financial returns, which as you have just made the argument might be way better than the, the, what we think is the quote unquote traditional model. And there's other pieces here too. Yes. I think that's so huge. Um, a majority of investors care about having their investments be aligned with their values. And there's not many opportunities for people to do that. That People are really frustrated by that. Um, a lot of financial advisors and wealth managers are, you know, get requests from their clients saying, please, you know, put my money into something I could feel good about. And these financial advisors are frustrated because they actually don't have a lot of ways to do that. They're, you know, financial advisors, if, if their clients are not accredited investors, they're pretty much limited to putting your people's money in the public markets. And, you know, even the companies in the, in the portfolios that are considered, quote unquote, socially responsible, there a lot of people don't love the companies when they actually look behind the curtain and see which companies are in those, uh, those portfolios. So, um, when you can offer not only a reasonable return and uh, and the fact that people are having a positive impact in the world, that gets people so excited. And also, we haven't talked a lot about the issue of race and gender yet. We I don't think we've talked about it at all, but that is a huge issue too. Like People are really noticing that almost all the money that's invested in our country is invested in businesses run by white men. <laughs> So um, there's a lot of people who are like, that's ridiculous. I want to diversify what I invest in, not just because I feel that it's wrong to not give funding to a more diverse group of people, but also because diversification of a portfolio is the smartest thing you could do, financially speaking, and you want different perspectives and different backgrounds and people who have maybe struggled a bit in their lives, like they tend to maybe run a business a little bit better. So. Um, There's so many reasons why um, that is important and attractive to investors. And also, this whole thing with impact investing, is it's very much of a growing field. And unfortunately, sometimes it's um, 
uh, impact investors in, or I should say VCs in, in impact investors clothing, <laughs> because, um, you know, a lot of impact investors are, you know, are still using the VC model. And, you know, I don't want to say the VC model is inherently bad. I mean, there's probably situations where it works really well and it makes a lot of sense. But in a lot of cases, the push to grow really fast and then have an exit can really hurt a company. It can actually kill a company really easily. And if the company does make it, it often leads to a loss of the original mission or a dilution of it. So when you, because really when you're dealing with VC money, you have to, I mean, you have no choice but to put the investor's interest above all other stakeholders. That is what you're, you're signing up for when you take that money. So, um, so that, you, just because you're a mission-driven business doesn't always mean that someone who calls themselves an impact investor is going to be a good fit for you because often it's it's just a VC who wants to see impact on top of the high returns and the big exit. So I want to talk a little bit about the importance of PR in the context of fundraising, fundraising in different ways. Um, I know this is a tricky process. You don't want to overdo it, you know, with your PR and marketing to get, you know, to be able to fundraise. But at the same time, you don't want to underdo it. Um, do you have any suggestions, you know, so as I'm, you know, advising clients uh, on their PR and marketing needs, you know, while they're fundraising, you know, what is too much or what is too little? Um, that's a good question. I mean, one thing that's really great about being about doing a public offering when you're raising money is you can include the, your conversation about the fact that you're raising money in your PR um, communications. And it can. I've had so many clients get free. I even, you know, when I've raised money, I've gotten tons of free media coverage because. I'm not just telling a story about, oh, my company's really great and we're doing this cool stuff. I'm like, I'm saying, not only is my company really great, but I'm raising money in this way that is actually very unusual. Uh, you know, it's, in, you know, I'm including everyone and in, in, I'm including my customers and my community in my raise and they're going to benefit as my company, you know, grows. And a lot of people in the media find that really interesting. So, um, that's a huge benefit of raising money with a public offering. Um, and, you know, otherwise it is hard to kind of get attention just by telling a story about your company. You know, obviously if you have a really compelling story like Sage does, you will get some attention. But, you know, a lot of, um, you know, as you know, Christina, like a lot of people that receive press releases or inquiries are really wise you like oh this is just to promote your company you know <laughs> that's not really what I'm here to do so yeah so that's kind of I, I'm definitely not an expert on PR and how it should be done at all but um that's kind of what I can contribute to that uh, no, <laughs> that no this is very helpful very helpful information as I move forward with um, you know advising clients on pub, um, public affairs and, and public relations so thank you well, and I think one of the things that you said that's super interesting is that it can actually be part of the messaging strategy. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so for myself as a marketer, we're always looking for the hook. And I think, Jenny, part of what you're saying here is this could be part of the hook in and of itself because it is so unusual and so um, in certain ways revolutionary. So, yeah. yeah. 
And, and Sage, you know, I've got, I have a 10-year-old daughter and a 9-year-old son. And, you know, my son often has, you know, today he's working after school with the teacher. What helps him when we study for tests and, and um, homework that he has is actually listening to music or making a song out of it. And so personally, I love what you're doing. Um, I love the empowerment factor, the, um, you know, reimagining the classroom, reimagining how you're, you're actually learning. And it's something that stays with the, chil- the kids throughout their life, which I think is very important. And it's also backed in cultural sensitivity, right? And so you're allowing the kids to bring their own music list to school. That's something personalized for them. And so they feel a connection with the education that they're getting and the learning process. So as we talk PR and marketing and kind of this new thinking towards funding, how are you thinking a little bit differently about how you might package the stories that you see with the students and the teachers and the administration in general? It's actually it's given me a lot of ideas. So I think one blind spot for us has been PR and marketing. And to Jenny's point, we've been fortunate to be the beneficiaries of a lot of free media, like Forbes, Washington Post, NPR. And those things just came just, I guess, like strictly off the, you know, how compelling our, our work has been. But I haven't thought, you know, a bit more strategically about marketing. And I kind of wanted to hear from Jenny's perspective, what's your perspective on a startup sort of bringing a marketing function in-house rather than, you know, consulting out with organizations and, and kind of like developing strategies that maybe don't require us to actually hire like uh, a marketer or a PR person in-house? Yeah, well, I'm definitely a huge fan of hiring people to help you with that. What I, what I think is so important is that you do in your business what is your genius. So mm-hmm. if, Sage, if you are an awesome marketer, then definitely spend time doing marketing yourself. But if your genius is more, you know, working on the product or, you know, negotiating contracts, you should definitely hire someone else to do the stuff that is not your genius. And that's exactly why I recommend so highly that people do go out and raise money because I see way too many entrepreneurs just doing their do, wearing every hat in their business, and that is a great way to. That is sage. I'm gonna. I'm just gonna put a plug in there right now. That is sage. He tries to wear all the hats and many right. other entrepreneurs. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, that's the entrepreneur thing. You know, we all do that, and that it, it makes you so exhausted, burnt out, and then you can't do what you're best at. Just do what you're best at and contract out for everything else, and that's why you need to raise money. <laughs> True. And, and kind of to that, so partnership, um, we talked about you, you've already partnered with a lot of school systems. What is your ideal, another ideal partner that you're looking for? For us, and I'm, I'm going to make this public because we're, we're beginning our own campaign, it would be a music streaming service, I think, like a Spotify title, maybe even an Apple. Uh, because at that point, we get a different level of engagement with the music and we get some integration points with actually like taking this as a as a cultural input in classrooms and making it something that's a lifestyle thing, which is a, an intersection that I think happens once we allow students to bring their whole selves into the classroom. Sage, you were talking about this before, right? You've been talking about, and so it's definitely going to happen now. I I can't say definitely, but we are certainly like in conversations now. I, I do believe 2018 will have a music streaming partner. So, so let's make it, how can we make it definite for you? What are some things that the community, the three of us, four of us sitting here at the table, others can do to help you move that to the next step? 
Spotify has a department called Spotify for Education. <laughs> they are our most ideal partner uh, in that they deliberately contacted school district superintendents to try to figure out exactly this problem, like how do we integrate music to make it a bit more systemic. And I think for us, we're very, very natural partners. I know that project is, is relatively new for them, um, but that, that's, if anyone has contacts there, or can kind of run this up the flagpole, please, please, please reach out to me. Well, we had a great conversation today. Thank you guys all for being with us. For those entrepreneurs interested in Jenny's work, definitely go to her website at jennycasson.com. And we will, of course, have it on our website so you can find the link easily. But it is spelled J-E-N-N-Y-K-A-S-S-A-N. Dot com, where you can learn more about what she does, buy a copy of her book, and find the dates and locations of her upcoming three-day boot camps where she trains entrepreneurs how to do fundraising differently. She also has a resource with videos that answers common questions about raising capital. It's a free resource, and you can access it at capitalraisingfaqs.com. So Sage, Words Live is doing amazing things. Uh, thank you so much for being on the show today. We'll be watching for what happens next, and hopefully we can see that Spotify partnership soon. Um, where can people find you to find out more? Sure. We're, we're pretty public. Uh, there's a website, wordslive.org, and w Words Live has two eyes. Uh, there's also social media, of course, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Um, and we're also writing for EdSurge, which is an education trade magazine. Wonderful. Well, so our, our goal today was really to rethink the way that fundraising can be done. Jenny gave us a lot to think about that. Number one is, you know, for entrepreneurs to really acknowledge that they need outside funding and then not to try to do it all themselves, um, that there are investments that can be in aligned with our values and we can think outside the traditional VC model. She did remind us that it's a highly regulated activity, but there's a lot of possibilities that we can meet those legal compliance um, milestones. And she also wanted to give us a little bit of thought about what to look for and what not to do when you are raising funds. So again, thank you all for being with us. Thank you, Jenny, for your time today. Thank you, Sage, for spending time with us. Thank and you. Yeah, no, this is great. We endured you just say thanks. This is and, awesome. And of course, as always, thank you for joining us on Get Found, Get Funded. Go to our website at getfoundgetfunded.com. Sign up for our newsletter and don't miss an episode. Mm -hmm.